You are listening to the Catholic Thinkers Podcast, a free treasury of instruction in the Catholic intellectual tradition. If you enjoy this lecture, please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate. This course is from our International Catholic University Classics Collection, originally recorded between 1995 and 2005. Praise be Jesus Christ. Welcome to this ongoing series, which constitutes an introduction to moral theology of the Catholic Church. Today we're going to talk about moral absolutes. We're going to talk about those actions which simply may never be done, regardless of the circumstances. Now, the Catholic Church has always insisted that there are certain actions which of their very nature are so disordered that regardless of the circumstances, a human being could never do those actions and truly remain faithful to his or her human dignity. Our Holy Father, Pope John Paul II, in his Reconciliatio et Penitentia, insists that the Church has always taught that, quote, there exist acts which per se and in themselves, independently of circumstances, are always seriously wrong by reason of their object, end quote. In other words, the moral object is always wrong. No matter the reason for choosing it, no matter the intention of the actor, there are certain actions which, by their very nature, by their very structure, if you will, are not consonant with human nature and are not appropriate for attaining the end, the goal that we really seek as human beings. Now, remarkably, there are some theologians today who deny that there are moral absolutes. They deny that there are certain actions which always and everywhere would be wrong. And they make a distinction within an act itself to support their argument. Now, let me explain a little bit what I mean here. There are theologians today, we might call them revisionists, who maintain that with the tradition, with the Catholic tradition, yes, we must always seek good and avoid evil. I mean, this is just built into our human nature. Everyone pursues uh, good and tries to avoid evil, or anyone who is trying to act morally does. Also, there are certain, uh, these theologians maintain, these revisionists, certain dispositions that always ought to go into our actions. We always ought to try to act justly, fairly, with love, so that every action which we do should be a loving act. Now, up to this point, they will agree with the tradition of the church. But then they will maintain that while there are these formal norms, that is, these norms which indicate the way in which we ought to approach the moral life, that is, we ought to act lovingly or justly, even though they hold to the idea of formal norms which bind on all people, they maintain that there are no kind of universally binding material norms. And a material norm would refer to a particular specific human act, such as murder or adultery. Well, actually, we could say that these can be expressed in an even more broadly neutral way than even murder or adultery. We can say that we ought never directly to take the life of an innocent human being. 
or we ought never to have sexual relations with the wrong person. That's still a more broad and general way in which it is expressed. Now, these theologians will say that very often the names that are given to those acts carry with them already a certain kind of moral judgment so that murder constitutes indeed the unjust killing of another human being or adultery defines our sleeping with the wrong person. But they will maintain that if we try to avoid these words which have a certain moral connotation and judgmental quality built right into them, that it's difficult to find, if not impossible to find, these material norms which are universally applicable. They will say, for example, that yes, we can say that uh, directly to kill an innocent human being is a material norm which is binding unless there is a proportionately good reason for doing so. That is, we should never kill directly an innocent human being unless this is going to help us achieve some greater good. And they will refer to this direct killing of an innocent human being as, yes, an evil, but not a moral evil. They refer to it as a pre-moral evil. They refer to it as an ontic evil. They refer to it as a material evil. It doesn't yet have its moral quality about it, and the moral quality will be given to that act by virtue of the reason for which that act is performed. So that, for example, in almost all cases, it is wrong directly to take the life of an innocent human being. But they will say if it's necessary to, let's say, save the life of a pregnant woman and she has responsibility for other children in the family, then there is a proportionate reason for doing so. There is a greater good that's going to be achieved for going ahead and destroying the life of that unborn child to save the life of the mother and to help her continue her own care and so forth of her children. So then the choosing of the ontic evil, that is the destruction of the life of the unborn child, yes, it's an ontic evil, that is, it's, it's a material evil, but it's not a moral evil. In doing this, actually, it becomes a moral good because it's being done for this proportionate reason, okay, this greater good. Now, one of the reasons our Holy Father issued his encyclical Veritatis Splendor, uh, the splendor of truth, an encyclical which dealt with moral theology, was to point out the errors in some of this kind of thinking. And in that encyclical, and also in the one I mentioned earlier on penance, the Holy Father insists with the entire tradition that there are certain actions which simply may never be done, and you certainly can't do an objectively immoral act in order to attain some proportionate greater good. Indeed, we have to see that when one would go ahead and choose this ontic evil, if you will, this material evil, one has pulled that evil then into the context of moral choice. And what we have then is one actually embracing a moral evil and one actually acting immorally. There are difficulties with this approach also because one can't always be certain what a proportionately greater reason would be which would justify our uh, performing some kind of ontically evil or materially evil act. Now, to be fair to these revisionists, they do not say that we can 
choose evil in order to do good. I mean, they will agree with St. Paul and with the tradition that we may never do evil to achieve good. The revisionists, however, kind of reinterpret that saying of St. Paul, and they say that what this really means is that we may never choose a moral evil in order to attain to a moral good. And they claim that what they are proposing is not that, but rather they claim that they are proposing or saying that it is legitimate to choose a material evil, an ontic evil, a pre-moral evil, or a non-moral evil, they use all these different kinds of words, in order to attain a moral good. And that it's the moral good that they are pursuing, okay, that they are attaining even in their choice of the ontic evil, or the premoral evil, that really defines the act that they are performing. They suggest that the tradition had always made a distinction between material and formal aspects of a given act, and that they are uh, taking advantage of this traditional distinction that had been there. Now, we had talked before about uh, the distinction between material and formal aspects of a given act. What we want to remember from that discussion is that both aspects, the formality and the materiality of the act, have to be present for there to be a true act. In other words, when the church would talk about a given act as being always wrong, it was taking into account both the formal aspect of that act and the material aspect of that act. In other words, it was taking into account the tradition, the church, taking into account not only, let's say, the material structure of that act, what we were doing physically, but also what we were understanding that act to be. In other words, the action which we were choosing. And if we consider the human person in terms of choosing the act on the basis of its structure, let's say, killing another human being, then we have both the formal and material aspects of that act together. So this is why our Holy Father says that there are certain acts which are always wrong from their object. So that if one chooses directly to take the life of an innocent human being, that is murder, and one is choosing murder. If one has sexual relations physically with someone who is not one's spouse, one knows what one is doing, one chooses that, then one indeed has committed adultery. And murder and adultery are always, under all circumstances, immoral because they do violence to the dignity of the human person and do not help the human person attain the end or the goal that they are truly seeking. There was a very celebrated case of a famous man who had become involved in a sexual relation outside of marriage. And it really led to dire consequences for him, finally the loss of his position, finally he was jailed because other things came to light once this adulterous relationship was learned of. But when he tried to explain why he had done what he did publicly, he said that he had done it to try to save his marriage, that his wife had become disenchanted with him and seemed to be interested in other younger men, and he thought if he could simply, through this adulterous act, make her jealous and pique her interest again and bring her back to the relationship. He was trying to choose 
a non-moral evil, if you will, as the revisionists would put it, in order to achieve a greater good, that is, the saving of his marriage. One can't see what's going to happen. If one chooses an act which of its nature is disordered and does violence to others, of its very nature, it does destructive work on the person, whether these things become public or not. So in his case, his whole life tended to unravel when this act was discovered publicly. We may never do an act which of its nature is disordered because it does violence and harm to the human person. We are discussing what are known as moral absolutes, which means that there are certain actions which may never be done. Logically, they can be done. I mean, we know that we can do murder, or we know that we can commit adultery, we know that we can steal. So when we say that they may never be done, we're not speaking here logically, we're speaking here morally. I mean, there are certain actions which simply do such violence to our nature as reasonable, free, willing, loving human beings that we simply can never do these actions without doing violence to ourselves or violence to some other person. Now, we have said before that for a human action to be good, all of the components of a human action have to be good. Your intention has to be right, the moral object has to be right, and the circumstances have to be right. Now, the moral object is the component of that formula, if you will, of that moral act, which is being called into question by the revisionist theologians who suggest that the, the moral object traditionally was referring simply to physical acts. And we were saying that this isn't true. Traditionally, the moral object refers not only to the physical act, but to our choosing that act. And in so choosing, it is no longer simply a physical act, that it becomes a moral act or the moral object. It becomes the object that we are choosing. Now, another principle of the moral life is that we may never do evil. The reason we may never do evil is that it does violence to our human nature. We know that in order to think logically, we have to be guided by certain principles of the speculative intellect, as we call it. There is the principle of non-contradiction, for example, that guides us in logical discourse. The principle of non-contradiction says that we can never affirm and deny the same thing under the same aspect at the same time. In other words, I can't insist that I am here and not here at the same time. I mean, that would be illogical. It would contradict itself, and we can't make contradictory statements and affirm those statements as though they were true. Now, this is just an insight that people have. We refer to these as innate principles of which we become aware. If someone denies the principle of non-contradiction, there's virtually no way in which you can argue to it. You, know, you just have to see that it's impossible to affirm and deny something at the same time under the same aspect. So there are certain principles that guide our speculative intellect and enable us to think logically, rationally, reasonably. By the same token, there is a principle that guides us in terms of our behavior. Not our thinking, but our behavior. And that is that we are to do good and to avoid evil. This is part of what constitutes us as human beings. Doing good will lead to our fulfillment and our flourishing. And this is what 
all of us seek. Even when people do evil, they usually think that somehow what they are doing is going to bring them a greater good. Somehow it's going to bring them flourishing. So we have to begin with an acknowledgement of this very fundamental principle that in our moral lives we are guided by this desire to do good and to avoid evil. But, you know, it's impossible for us to actualize, to achieve, to realize all the goods in life of which we are capable. There are certain ways in which we choose goods, and our choosing of the goods, if they are going to be morally sound, have to lead to our self-fulfillment. They have to lead to our integration. All of our drives and our passions and our appetites have to be brought together in such a way that they are ordered toward a good end, which is our wholesome living and ultimately our life with God in heaven. But since we can never act on all the goods which present themselves to us in this life, we must be careful about the goods that we choose. One thing that we cannot do is ever to act against a good, because goods provide the very basis for free human action. The fact that they are out there is what leads us to act in the first place. So we may never act against a good as though we're an evil, because then we do violence again to ourselves and we prevent ourselves from attaining the goal which we want. So we may never directly will an evil. In a sense, because it goes contrary to our nature, it's beneath our dignity. Now, there are times in life in which we see that if we perform an act, some evil may result from it. I mean, life is a very, very complex undertaking. I mean, all of you out there know that very well. We at times can be drawn to do a particular act. For example, I might have a lecture to give someplace, and I've agreed to do a lecture, but something comes up in my family life, and I really should be there with my family at that time, but I have another commitment. What does one do in a situation like this? I mean, not being with my family would be wrong. Not fulfilling the obligation that I have to speak someplace would also be wrong. So we have to make choices sometimes that will entail perhaps some evil. And in fact, invariably, that will happen. It happens in life. But what's critically important is we never choose the evil. If the choice I make involves some neglect of my family, which would be an evil, I may never choose to neglect my family. I may never choose to act against the good of my children. I may never choose to do any evil at all, because in so doing, I violate my nature and I do great harm to myself. Remember, St. Thomas Aquinas said in his Summa Contra Gentilis, this beautiful line that I've used before, which clarifies things so much for us, and that is that God is offended by us only when we act against our own good. And we act against our own good when we violate our nature as reasonable creatures. So we may never choose an evil, but we find ourselves in some circumstances in life in which, while we are choosing a good, we see that an evil might result from that action or might be attendant upon that action or might be one of the consequences of that action which I have chosen. So in choosing the good act, I see that there is also going to be accompanying that good act some evil, such as perhaps 
the neglect of my family because of a lecture that I'm giving someplace. Now we say there that what we do is to permit that evil to take place even though we don't will it. So we have to say that morally speaking, there's a vast difference between directly willing an evil and permitting an evil. Our Lord could not have chosen his own death. Our Lord could not have chosen that evil would befall him. I mean, how could he choose such a thing? But we know that he had a task to perform, and he was doing the will of his father, and his father had sent him to Jerusalem, and we have that beautiful passage in Scripture which says, Our Lord set his face as flint toward Jerusalem. He was going to go to Jerusalem and fulfill the will of his father. And even as he was doing that, he knew what lay ahead. It was going to be great suffering and deprivation and humiliation and beating and scourging, being spat upon, carrying his cross, dying. These were horrible things, and these were evils. But when our Lord went to Jerusalem, he didn't choose those evils. He chose the great good of our salvation. He chose the good of doing the will of his Father. He could foresee those evils, but he did not choose them. So we make a distinction here between a directing will, a direct will, a direct intention, a will that, that directly wants something, and a permitting will, that even as the will directs some good, they see that there is an evil attendant upon it. They don't will that. They don't directly will it. They permit it. Now, this is morally allowable in one's life. In fact, there simply is no way of avoiding this kind of situation, given the complexity of living in an evil and sinful world. The Catholic Church has always taken this distinction between a directive will and a permitting will into account when it's done evaluations of moral acts. One of the things that the revisionists have done, however, these revisionists who are denying that there are such things as moral absolutes, which may never be done, is to deny that there is any real distinction between a directing will and a permitting will. They will say that this merely is a verbal distinction that has no meaning in the concrete world. That if we choose to do something and see that there's going to be an evil attendant upon it, that we're directly choosing that evil as well. It's a little difficult to go further with these people when I, I hope that the way I've just explained the difference between the two has been clear to you. But when somebody simply denies that there is a difference between these two aspects of a choosing will, it seems to me there's not much further that we can go. I believe that they really deny the distinction because if you hold to the distinction, it undermines their position that there are certain material norms that can be violated, which generally are regarded as being always in, uh, and everywhere and under all circumstances evil. In other words, it becomes a tool to help them advance their position, which really has no support within the Catholic moral tradition. But when we come back, we're going to look at some of the moral principles that are used to guide us in making choices in evil situations in which the choice for the good becomes very, very difficult. We have to make choices all the time which seem to involve some evil. A woman is thrilled at the news of her pregnancy and she carefully 
monitors the development of the child within her that she and her husband are looking forward to so much. And then one day she receives some dreadful news. She has uterine cancer. And if it isn't taken care of right away, it's very likely that she's going to die. Now this poor woman is faced with a terrible choice. She loves the child that she's already carrying within her. She and her husband want this child desperately. She also wants to live. She has responsibility for her husband and other children who are already born. What does the poor woman do? If she chooses not to have the cancerous uterus removed, she may well die. And this would be a dreadful situation for her husband and her children being deprived of a wife and mother. But if she does have the cancerous uterus removed, the child that she is looking forward to caring for and raising will certainly die. This is an awful choice, and regrettably, life is filled with these kinds of choices. But one thing the Catholic tradition has always said is that we may never choose evil in order to do good. No matter what good we are seeking, morally our act is undermined, is vitiated, if we choose an evil to attain that good. Now because people are often faced with these kinds of choices, and because the Catholic Church believes that it is possible with God's grace, with God's help, to avoid making evil choices in this life, God has promised us that His grace is always sufficient to help us overcome the difficulties in life. Catholic theologians have thought long and hard and reflected carefully on these kinds of situations and have come up with certain principles to help guide us through such terrible and difficult choices. The moral theologians of the Catholic Church have developed a principle known as the principle of double effect. And this is used to help us through the kinds of difficult choices that I've just mentioned. What happens when we are faced with a situation in which we see that the good which we choose is also going to have some evil effect? And that's why this is called the principle of double effect. The action that we're going to choose is going to have two effects. One effect is good, the other effect is evil but we may never do evil. May we go ahead and perform this act, which we see will have two effects. And the church says, yes, you may, if the four following conditions are met. The first condition is that the action itself, which we are choosing, which we want to do, is itself good. Even though we see that we're going to perform a good action which will have an evil effect, it has to be the good action, the good moral object that we're choosing, and not the bad or evil effect. So the act itself must be good. That's the first condition in the application of this principle. The second condition is that we intend only the good. We see that the action is going to have two effects, the action itself must be good, 
and the only thing which we can intend is the good effect, the good action, the good moral object. So those are the first two conditions. The third condition might be a little more difficult to understand, although it's not all that difficult. In many ways, all of these reflections and directives by the church are really very commonsensical, fundamentally. But the third condition says that when we're choosing an action and we see that it will have a good and an evil effect, the good effect must precede the evil effect. Now, usually that's understood temporally in time, that is that the good effect has to happen before the evil effect does. Another way it's sometimes put is that the good action must proceed with the evil or the evil might arise with it simultaneously. What's key in that condition is that the choice of an evil is not leading to a good. In other words, it's the choice of the good which we are pursuing and the good might have attendant upon it some evil effect or consequence. In other words, we're speaking here causally, that we can't choose the evil and the evil bringing about some kind of good indirectly or attendantly. It has to be the good which we are willing and the good that is what we are actually accomplishing with the evil effect being attendant upon that. In other words, we're merely tolerating or, again, permitting the evil effect we are not willing it. And it all says that there's simply no other way in which I can achieve this good, right? uh, because no one wants to allow evil to come into the world. Now, even if all of these three conditions are met, we still can't go ahead and perform the action unless there is a grave reason for doing so, and it has to be a proportionately grave reason. So what do I mean here? Well, you can't choose a good action that might be a small good, so that the action itself is quite all right and there's nothing wrong with it, but you see that it will have a very grave and bad, unintended evil side effect. The evil would far outweigh the good there, the good that's even sought and directly willed, and simply couldn't justify our going ahead and performing that kind of action. So there has to be a proportionately grave reason for doing the action at all. Which brings us back to this poor woman and the dilemma in which she finds herself with her pregnancy. What can she do? Well, the church is taught that she may go ahead and have the cancerous uterus removed in order to save her life. She may. Because what she is seeking is a good. She's seeking health. She's seeking to save her life. She's doing this for good reasons, to be supportive and faithful to her, to her husband and to her children. What is being removed is the pathology. It's a pathological condition. It's an evil. It's a disease. And what she is seeking is healing. That's all that she intends as well. She certainly doesn't intend the death of the child in the uterus. And indeed, she experiences great anguish at the thought of the death of the child. But the death of the child is indirect. It's permitted. It's not willed. She sees that it is a consequence that will result for her action, but it's not the immediate one. Okay? It's indirect. It's tolerated. It's not chosen. Okay? It's permitted. And obviously, in this case, there is a proportionately grave reason for doing so. 
we're not talking about her performing an act like this because she wants to preserve her youthful figure. Under normal circumstances, it's a good thing to try to preserve your youthful figure. But I mean, obviously, uh, here we're talking about a life and death situation, the only sort of thing that could ever justify this kind of act. Now, we might want to see here that the church doesn't say that she has to undergo this surgery for the removal of the cancerous uterus, but rather that she may that she would be doing no moral wrong, performing no moral evil, if she did. Some women in situations like this have chosen not to undergo that kind of surgery. I just recently read of a woman in Italy who had refused treatment for cancer because she feared that it would undoubtedly lead to the death of the child that she was carrying. And she chose to take her chances to bring the child to term and then to set about the task of trying to fight her cancer. She knew the risks that were involved. She took those risks. The child was born, and the woman died some three or four months later from the cancer that she had chosen. Now, in that case, too, you see, she didn't choose her death. She chose to bring the child to term. She chose to bear the son, and she foresaw that there might be an evil effect if she made that choice, which might have been her own death from cancer but you can't say that she chose to die of cancer. Indeed, she fought it very hard. As soon as the baby was born, she underwent all the procedures that would have possibly have helped her overcome the cancer, but none of them were adequate. So this principle helps to give us some guidance in making hard choices in life. And as I say, living in a sinful world, living with evil all around us, we can't avoid it. And we're going to have to be making choices which are hard choices and which may involve some evil. And the only way in which we can justify doing that is if we can apply this principle of double effect. This is a beautiful tool. I was well into my 20s before I ever even heard of the principle of double effect, but it has been a wonderfully useful tool to help me make decisions in life as I struggle to remain faithful to the good and the true, as I try to remain faithful to God and to make the kinds of choices that are necessary for me to be faithful to him. We're not talking here about distinctions which are verbal only. I think in the example that was just given in this segment, that we're not dealing here with simple semantics or logical distinctions, but rather we are talking here about realities and concrete existence that will enable us to lead a good life and to avoid evil. And in this struggle, to attain the morally good life, the church has provided us with some tools that help us make distinctions and make the kinds of choices which will enable us to attain the good that God wants for us. I use the principle of double effect to explain what a pregnant mother might do in a dreadful situation in which she discovered that she had a cancerous uterus. But this principle can be used in many other circumstances as well. For example, we know that in the moral waging of war that soldiers may never directly take the life of non-combatants. Non-combatants, non-soldiers are immune from warfare and they ought never to be attacked and it's evil to do so. But let's say a military commander sees that a, a platoon of tanks is coming down a valley and is going to greatly endanger his position. In fact, if the tanks get through, they really have no hope of being able to fend off the enemy's advance. 
And there's a particular place in the pass where if they bombard it, they can see that they can likely stop these tanks. Now, one of the very unfortunate things is that there is a small village near the pass where the tanks are coming through. And in the course of the attempt to stop the tanks, there will undoubtedly be some stray shells which may fall into the village and result probably in the death of some non-combatants. But the people in this village are also the ones who are being protected by this military commander. May he go ahead and try to stop this tank advance even though he sees that there may be some loss of innocent human life. Well, again, the principle of double effect can be applied in that situation in terms of his willing only the good, which is stopping the advance of the enemy. That's the good he's choosing, that's what he's intending, and the loss of civilian life would be tolerated or permitted, not desired at all. And finally, there must be a very grave reason for even allowing that to happen. One of the things which the revisionists did, the revisionists who deny that there is such a thing as absolute moral norms or moral absolutes, is that they collapse everything, this whole process of reflection, into the last condition of proportionality. And they say, well, the tradition has said if there's a proportionally grave reason, we can go ahead and do anything. But the tradition doesn't say that. The revisionists have used that to deny that there is such a thing as objective material norms against certain actions which apply always and under all circumstances. But the principle of double effect doesn't even work, isn't even necessary, unless there is a prior conviction that there are certain actions which simply may never be done. In other words, were there no moral absolutes, the church would never have gone to the trouble of trying to develop these principles that help us make moral choices in life when we see that evil might result. So what separates us from the proportionalists or these revisionists is the fact that we hold to the truth that there are certain actions which simply may never be done. There are moral absolutes and that can be seen in the very first condition of this principle that is that the action which we choose must be a morally good act and not an evil act. Now, there is another principle that we use in trying to make difficult decisions in a complex life, and it's known as the principle of formal cooperation in the evil act of another. We refer to it sometimes as the principle of formal and material cooperation with evil. We can find ourselves in situations sometimes where the people we're working with are involved in doing something evil or something immoral. May I continue to go ahead and work with these people? To what extent can I? How evil does the action have to be before I fully withdraw myself from any kind of participation with them? How closely involved in their evil do I have to be before I, I say, I'm sorry, I can't work here anymore? This can pose a very complex question for us. I mean, even as simple a thing as a teenager looking for work after school and he goes to work in a video store. And in that video store are X-rated movies. Now, you know, the young man wouldn't watch them. He would have nothing to do with them. He'd never sell them. He'd never buy them. The video store that rents these out also rents out uh, The Bells of St. Mary's, Going My Way, Nun's Story, all kinds of very good films that this young man would like to see 
disseminated in the community, encourage people to go see. So there's good involved in this. It's not in and of itself a bad thing. It's not a totally X-rated video store, which he'd never dream of going to, to work. May he go ahead and work there? Well, these are some of the tough questions that Catholics encounter all the time. Now, the first thing that we have to say is that we may never go along with the evil that is being done. If we would, that would be called formal cooperation in the evil. That is, we would be entering into the evil intent of the person doing the evil act. So let's say the owner of the video store is the one that has chosen to have an X-rated section of these kinds of movies in his store. You couldn't go there and work there and say, well, I, you know, I agree with you and I, I think everybody ought to be able to have access to these kinds of movies and I think you've got a great store and a great program here and I go along with it. Well, that would be formal cooperation in evil. We may never do that. We may never formally cooperate in evil. But sometimes we find ourselves in these situations which have us cooperating not formally, as we say, but materially. That is, I happen to be present. I am there. And even though I don't agree with what's being done, in some sort of indirect way, I am actually contributing to it. Now the question arises whether or not I may still go ahead and perform the act. Now we make a distinction here between the immediate material cooperation in someone's evil act and immediate material cooperation in someone else's act. Immediate material cooperation would mean that even though I interiorly disapprove of what's being done, nevertheless, I go ahead and do it. Okay? There's an immediate cooperation. This isn't permitted either, because even though I may say, well, look, I don't approve of these things, but I'm going to go ahead and help you with advertising them and so forth because, well, it's part of your business, and even though you now know that I don't agree with it, I'm still going to work with you because I've made my position known. That's enough. Well, this is immediate material cooperation, and it involves us, frankly, just simply too closely in the evil that is being done. It actually helps us promote the evil which is being done. But there is what's called immediate material cooperation, and this is a way in which I not only do not approve of what you're doing, and I make it known that I don't approve of what you are doing, at the same time, I might be involved in part of the enterprise, which really doesn't have me immediately involved in the evil action. It might be that I work in a large hospital and I polish and clean and buff the floors. And it might be that there is one part of the hospital in which abortions are sometimes performed. I'm fiercely pro-life. I'm opposed to abortion. This is the only job, however, I've been able to find. I was out of work for six months. I have my own family to provide for. Does my being involved in cleaning and buffing and polishing floors in one of the wings of this hospital in which some abortions are done, does this involve me in this evil? Well, in a very immediate and remote kind of way. Now, I must say, and, and I suspect anyone who was pro-life would feel the same way, if you could find a job someplace else, you would do it. But if there would be an evil that would result from, let's say, you're not 
taking that job, which would mean you're not being able to provide for your family, to pay the rent. If there's a grave reason, in other words, if, a, if another evil will result because of your not being there, then if you are remote from the evil which is being performed, and it is only immediate, that is a immediate, M-E-D-I-A-T-E, rather than immediate involvement, that then one might continue to go ahead and be involved in that kind of work. I say, I would think, always looking for another job, if at all possible. I think it's quite clear that if one were, let's say, a nurse on the floor in which these kinds of dreadful evil deeds were being performed, that is abortions, that that would simply have you immediately involved. You might be opposed to it, you might let it be known that you're opposed to it, but you would simply be too immediately involved or too proximate to the evil that is being performed to allow you to continue in that kind of situation. Now another factor that we have to keep in mind here is the principle of scandal. Never do we ever want willfully, through anything that we do or don't do, lead someone else to sin. And sometimes we find ourselves in situations where the action that I am performing, the place where I am working, even though it isn't actually involving me in sin, is so associated with sin in people's minds and leaves myself so exposed to being understood as being involved in evil uh, that in order to avoid scandal to others, to avoid perhaps leading others to sin, that I really have a responsibility to, to remove myself from that situation. St. Paul himself would refrain from eating meat offered to idols just because of the danger of people thinking that perhaps he saw nothing wrong in the worship of idols. So the church has developed these principles to help us always to pursue the good in life, the good to which God is calling us in a very complex and sinful world. We hope you enjoyed listening to Catholic Thinkers. Please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate to help us keep this content free.